Paul Rick, I thought you were preaching on these verses this morning. They're pretty straightforward, aren't they? So maybe we'll just pray and go home. No, maybe we'll... We're going to wrestle with these verses today. Um, and you know, as we do, we've got to remember, we've got to always remember this, that uh, if it's in God's Word, uh, then it means that it's good for us. If God says it, it's good for us. So He says these words to us for our good. So... Let's pray again, and uh, just uh, we'll think about these verses together. Father, again, we come and we pray that you would help us as we think about this. We pray as Parag prayed that uh, you would uh, bring healing or humbling, that you would help us, that you would encourage us, that you would challenge us. We pray, Father, that uh, you would, through your Spirit, minister grace to us, to enable us to do what you're calling us to do here. And we pray, Father, that we'd be honest with ourselves, maybe, about potentially wrong intentions in our hearts. Father, that you would work to make us more of what you want us to be. And Father, not for our sake, but for the sake of the gospel and our witness here. So, Father, we pray that you would help us. Uh, would you take a few moments in your own heart, just silently, don't say anything out loud, but just ask God to speak to your heart this morning. And then if you'd take just a few moments and pray for me, pray that God would speak through me, that he would help me as we think about uh, these verses. Father, we believe that uh, if you say it, then it is for our good. We pray that you would help us in our unbelief. As many times we see things in your word that maybe we don't like, help us to remember that you love us, and Father, that you seek to increase our joy as we look to you. So help us, Father, to be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, no meetings, no sports, no clubs, no school. Lockdown, two kilometers, five kilometers, county, no international travel, essential work only, work from home orders, guarded checkpoints. Remember those fines, sometimes arrests, social distancing, no singing, COVID payments, furlough, vaccine pressure, maybe even in some cases vaccine mandates. If anyone thinks these verses aren't relevant to us today, they haven't really been living on planet Earth for the past 18 months, have they? Now, these verses are intensely relevant. I mean, think about it. If we had arrived, like we just preach through the sequence that Paul gives us here in Romans. If we had arrived at these verses in December of 2019, this sermon would probably look a little different given what we've endured. But here we are. And so all around the world, uh, we see 
Uh, all around the world, we see trouble, we see talk of government overreach, we see protests, we see splits. Even in churches, we, we hear talk of civil disobedience. So where do we toe the line, and where do we cross it? And that's to say nothing of just outright corruption in governments around the world. Think about what's going on in Ethiopia right now, or in Nigeria, or in North Korea. I mean, these are not easy things for us to wrestle with, especially given these particular verses that we see here. Now, this text, I just want to say at the beginning, this text from Paul is not an exhaustive treatment of the way a Christian relates to government. And this sermon won't be an exhaustive treatment of that either. That's not Paul's primary intent, and it's not going to be mine either. There's going to be questions that are left for us to wrestle with uh, when we finish. The, The text seems a bit out of place as we think about what Paul has done in Romans. At first glance, it seems like maybe he's just taken a huge tangent that doesn't necessarily relate to what he's talked about before. And as we read uh, these verses, it almost feels out of balance, as if maybe there's something else going on in this church that Paul is writing to which he is correcting, but yet which we aren't necessarily privy to as we stand 2,000 years later. Now, as we read, as Parag read these verses, maybe you noticed, maybe you made the observation that there are no exceptions given to the command that Paul has made here, that he's given us. But surely Paul's read Daniel, right? Surely Paul knows that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego all those years before defied the orders of their king and were praised for it. Surely Paul knows the the origin story of the church where in Acts we see that Peter and John defied the command of the civil authorities to stop sharing the gospel. Surely Paul knows that. I think there's several reasons that Paul includes these words the way that he does here. Mainly, if you think about what Paul's done in Romans, Paul has talked a lot in Romans about this idea of kingdom transfer, uh, that we have a new identity in Christ, that he has taken us from the kingdom of sin, the kingdom of this world, and he has placed us in the kingdom of his son, the kingdom of grace. He's just instructed us earlier in chapter 12 not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. And all of this might lead us to believe that somehow our faith puts us above the law. That our faith puts us above the the laws to which we are accountable in our world. Or or that we have maybe a, a new liberty to choose whether we will obey them or not. Think back to chapter 8 of Romans. How do Christians relate to a government that there in those verses might send them to slaughter? Or at the end of chapter 12, just 
When Paul has instructed us or talked to us about setting aside personal vengeance and leaving room for God's wrath, does that mean that there is no temporal justice? Does that mean that there is no sense in which the guilty are punished in this world? Finally, it does seem that there is something going on in the wider culture in this particular time related to taxation. And Paul speaks into that. Uh, most pointedly in verse 6 when he tells them or he, he, he praises them for paying their taxes and doing what is expected of them. So look, while Paul doesn't say everything in these verses, he says a lot. He says a lot. So how does a Jesus follower relate to governing authorities in this age? Fundamentally, Paul is going to argue that because God has established government to restrain evil and to promote good, because God has done that, citizens should, in general, be subject to the government and obey its laws. Now, I want us to just think about what Paul says here as we look more closely at that statement. Just look at at verse 1, the very first sentence. We could probably seriously pray and go home at this point. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. You could underline that whole sentence. Every person there means every person. (laughs) Believer and unbeliever, if you are a part of God's world, this in some sense applies to you. What it means is that Paul is talking to us as well. We can't stand on the outside and merely observe what might be going on in this particular setting. No, no, no. We're in this as well. This applies to us too. And notice he says to be subject to, to submit yourselves to. It's a military term. And it was used of soldiers that, that, that got in line under the hierarchy of their commanders and those that were over them. And listen, it means more than to simply obey. There's more involved in it than to simply obey. It means that we understand, that we stand under government as those who stand under God. We don't stand outside And then kind of dip in and out when it suits us or when we want to. No, we align ourselves within the program that God has established in this age. Which involves, Paul says, these God-established and God-ordained authorities. He says, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now let that sink in. Paul says that God stands behind the institution of government because he has determined in his providential sovereignty, he has determined to delegate authority to the government institution in this age. That all government exists because of his decree 
in order to carry out his ultimate purposes. And so from our perspective, from a human perspective, we see elections and we see coups and we see heritage. But from a divine perspective, we see providence moving things here and there in order to accomplish the will of God. Just listen to the words of Daniel 2. In verses 20 and 21, Daniel answers the king and says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Listen to this. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. God is providentially ordering things in order to accomplish his ultimate purpose. Now, there's a couple of implications to that. Here's the first implication. The government is merely a steward. A government is only a steward that has derived or delegated authority. Governments don't have authority in themselves. They have authority only as God ordains it. And listen, that even applies to the wicked ones. Now, that doesn't mean that God causes government sin. It doesn't mean that God approves of sin. It doesn't mean that God lets off government leaders that commit sin. Let me just give you a few examples that we see of this very thing in the Scripture. Consider Pharaoh, not a good guy. Yet, listen to what God says through Moses about Pharaoh in Exodus 9. For this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. When the kingdom of Judah is taken from the king of Rehoboam because he acted wickedly, and is given over to Jeroboam in 1 Kings 12, verse 15. Here's what the writer says. The king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord so that he might fulfill his word in making Jeroboam king. Think about Cyrus the Persian. You can read Isaiah 45, how God raised him up and how God was going to bring him down. Daniel chapter 4, we see Nebuchadnezzar, who in his pride raises himself up against God and ultimately goes crazy as an act of God's judgment. And he recognizes, he recognizes of God that God has raised him up and has brought him down. And perhaps most importantly, most pointedly, Think about what Jesus says to Pilate in John 19, 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Lest it had been given to you from above. That leads us to a second implication, and that is that ultimately... 
All government is accountable to God, even the most wicked. You can read Revelation 13, Revelation 18, how uh, when the, the beast sets himself up, God takes him down. Government is ultimately accountable to God because God sits at the top of the hierarchy of authority. There is no one greater. He is ultimate, not government. If we look at verse 2, though, in Romans 13, we're reminded that we are not ultimate either. Notice Paul says, therefore, because this is what God has done, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. If that's true, if it's true that God has ordered this and has established this and that God sits atop the structure, then obeying the authorities is not something that we do in addition to obeying God. Obeying the authorities is a way in which we obey God. Paul says the one who resists. The word resist is the opposite of the word for submit. So it's taking ourselves out of line with what God has established and with what God is doing and, and, and setting ourselves against what he is doing. It is rebelling in one sense against God and his order. And for that, he says, Paul says, judgment awaits. And that is certainly God's judgment, but at least in part and in a temporal sense, that judgment has an expression through government authority, doesn't it? That's one thing that government does. In verses 3 and 4, we see that a right government is supposed to function as a servant of God. In verse 6, even a minister uh, of God. And so one of the ways that right government functions is to restrain sin. And they restrain sin by punishing evil. You see it all the way back in Genesis chapter 9. Notice what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. You see a little bit in verse, you see down in verse 4, that he does not bear the sword in vain. Possibly a reference to the death penalty, but it is at least a reference to the fact that government has been established in order to punish wrongdoing, to restrain sin by creating a sense of fear in disobeying. I was driving back from Ennis last night, and when I was coming back into Galway there on the motorway where the motorway ends and it goes from 120 to 100, there was a terror that came over me. And I thought, there's going to be a speed van there waiting to laser me. I better slow down. And I slowed down. This is one of the things that government does. It restrains sin by punishing evil. Government serves also not just to restrain sin, but to promote the good of its people, to promote flourishing amongst its people. Notice again, Paul saying, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but bad. Would you have no fear 
then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. One of the reasons government exists is to promote the good of its people. Governments don't exist for their rulers. They exist for their people. Incidentally, this is why I believe democracy is the best form of government in this age, is because this is why governments exist, for your good, Paul says. The fact of the matter is that probably all of us slept really well last night not fearing that someone was going to come into our house and kidnap or kill us. We probably don't worry that a bank is going to somehow lose all of our money or that marauding groups of, 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 of gangs are going to come and harm us in some way. Most of us understand that if we dial 999, someone is going to pick up. And they're going to come, and they're going to help us. Even bad government, and all government is in some sense bad. No government is perfect. But even bad government is better than anarchy and chaos. There is no flourishing. There is no stability in anarchy. Verse 5, Paul repeats the command. Incidentally, he repeats this command to submit three times in these verses. In verse 5, he says, Therefore, <clears throat> one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. He says we are to submit, to line up under government authority because we'll face the wrath of God's agent if we don't. And even more than that, now that we know how the institution of government fits into God's overall plan, we know that it is God's will. And so it becomes a matter of conscience for us. Our conscience has been informed, and so we submit in order to honor God. And in verses 6 and 7, he says, because of this, because we are aware now of government authority's role in God's plan. He says we submit and we pay taxes so that they can get on promoting good and restraining sin. For the authorities, he says, are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Doug Moo, one commentator on Romans, he summed it up this way. He said, because they are ordained by God, Believers are to respect and honor government authorities, manifesting that submission in the paying of taxes. See, this is to be our normal posture as believers. In obeying authorities, we are obeying and honoring God's ordained means of ruling in this age. Most of the time. Most of the time. While I think that in these verses there's an implicit allowance here for exceptions, and I'll talk about that in a few minutes, Paul gives no explicit exceptions to this. He doesn't say, submit yourself to governing authorities unless they're wicked or unless they don't do what you want them to do. He doesn't give any explicit exceptions here about this. 
And consider the identity of the ruler of Rome at this point when Paul writes. It's a man named Nero. Nero was a wicked, wicked man. And when Paul writes in around AD 55, Nero is not nearly as wicked as he is going to become. So fast forward 10 years, and Peter is going to write an epistle, and he is going to be under Nero, and at that point, Nero is persecuting Christians, he is doing all kinds of evil things. And yet, listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Parenthesis, this is me. Who is persecuting you? Back to Romans 13. We can't let possible exceptions distract us from the plain meaning of the text. Paul is thinking about our default position in relation to authority. But the absence of exceptions doesn't mean that there aren't any. We know that there are. Again, Paul is thinking here about the right functioning of government. But we know that governments can be wicked. Think about verse 3 again. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Well, we know governments who are a terror to good conduct, don't we? So governments don't always do what pleases God. And so Paul's argument implicitly is that if a government's authority is derived from God, then they must obey God. And because God sits atop the hierarchy, if a government does not obey God, then we must essentially defer up. Our ultimate allegiance is to the ultimate authority. And we see this. We see this in various places in the scriptures. We must disobey a government that commands what God condemns or that condemns what God commands because, again, implicitly here in these verses, moral authority doesn't originate with governments. Moral authority originates with God. Governments don't determine what is right or wrong or good or bad. Governments reward what is right and good and punish what is wrong or bad. So government is a part of a hierarchy, Paul has argued, and God sits at the top of it. So just consider Exodus chapter 1, when Pharaoh commands the Israel, uh, Israelite midwives to kill the baby boys that are born. We read, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. And then later in verse 21, 
And because the midwives feared God, parenthesis, and disobeyed the order of Pharaoh, God rewarded them. God gave them families. Or again, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. They say to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The king had said, I'm going to set an image and everybody must bow down. And they said, sorry, we can't do that. And they faced the consequence, didn't they? Acts chapter 4, the officials call the apostles Peter and John in. They charge them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answer, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen or heard. Later in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, they're commanded not to speak about Jesus again by the governing authorities, and they said, quite simply, we must obey God rather than men. Moral authority resides with God, not with government. So if the government tells us something is right, that God says is wrong, and then compels us to do it, then we must disobey we must disobey. And this came to a fore, didn't it, in some sense, during the lockdown. When the, the government was forbidding us, telling us that we could not meet together. And what you saw there that time was this weird little uh, interaction where you have the, uh, the, the, the command of God to not forsake meeting together. You, you have the place of the church in determining whether to meet together and what that meeting looks like. But then you also have the right authority of the government to promote the good of people by protecting health and safety. And so you have this weird interaction where those two things overlapped with one another. And so what did we do? Well, we decided that COVID wasn't a veiled threat that the government was using to try to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. We decided that the government was acting in good faith in trying to promote health and safety, that the regulations were broadly applied, and they were temporary. And yes, it lasted a while, it's gone on for a while, but we're seeing things moving towards the removal of these restrictions. And so we determined that out of love for our neighbor, we were not out of bounds in deferring to the government authority by temporarily suspending our in-person meetings. It was a weird overlap of these two things that took place. Now, had the government said, churches, you are forbidden to meet forever, well, then we would have had to make a different decision. But our normal posture is to obey. So what's our general takeaway here? It's this. 
that good Christians should be good citizens insofar as they are able. And look, that talk of submission, it shouldn't be unusual for us. Submission is a part of the Christian life. We are called to submit in any number of areas in our lives as believers. So we're called to submit to the Lord Jesus. We're called to submit to one another. Wives are called to submit to husbands. Uh, We're called to submit to church leaders. Uh, Slaves are called to submit to their masters. And in fact, all of us are either slaves of Christ or slaves of sin. Submission is a normal part of the Christian life. It shouldn't surprise us that Paul would say, submit to the authority that God has instituted. Again, government doesn't always act in line with God's will. And there may come a time when we have to resist because the government has acted in contradiction to God's moral authority. And that is admittedly tricky. It's not easy. So when do we disobey? How do we discern? Because listen, mere disagreement with government is not a reason to disobey government. Well, there are times when an action or a restriction that's sanctioned by law is so grievous, is so horrific and widespread that we must disobey. How horrific? Where's the line? Well, is it speed limits? Where the government says, we're going to lower the speed limit from 80 to 50? Probably not. Is it masks? It's not that big a deal. Is it murder? Yeah. How widespread is it? Is it something that impacts one person? Or is it something that impacts millions of people? That comes into play. And how do we do it? How do we disobey if we feel that we must disobey? Our disobedience must seek to highlight the gospel. In other words, any civil disobedience cannot be merely about liberty. It must be about the gospel. And so we ask Will our disobedience give us an opportunity to be clear in expressing the message of the gospel? We don't disobey with violence or with vindictiveness. We do like Daniel did in Daniel chapter 6. He puts himself on the line. The king had forbidden him to pray. He goes up to the upper room of his house. He opens the window. He kneels down and he prays. And then he's ready to face the consequences of his disobedience. And all of that with a view to pointing people to a God that is worth our suffering. If we have to disobey, our disobedience looks different. The tone is different. After all, we serve a Savior who gave his life at the hands of unjust men. Our default position is submission. But listen, I won't submit 
to an imperfect government unless I believe that the gospel is greater. Unless I believe that the gospel is greater than my inconvenience, than my frustration, than even my freedom or my suffering, I won't submit. Remember, as bad as the Roman government was in Paul's day, the gospel expanded. The gospel flourished even through suffering. See, we can't forget that we are ultimately agents of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is centered on the announcement that the true and right king has appeared in Jesus. It centers on us telling people that message. And in obeying government, we show people the power of the gospel in transforming us. And if we must disobey, we highlight a gospel that is worth our suffering, that is greater. God, I'm convinced, and listen, I know that I'm saying this from a, from a position of privilege, living in the place that I live. God is more concerned with our faithfulness than He is with our freedom. God is more concerned with our faithfulness to the gospel than He is with our freedom. And so just as we conclude today and go and be good citizens, let me just challenge us to pay Pray and play. Pay, pray, and play. We saw it in verse 7. Paul says, Pay to all what is owed, taxes to whom taxes, revenue to whom revenue, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. So pay respect and honor and tax to the government authorities. Now listen, you might say, but they're idiots. Maybe they are. Maybe they are. Maybe that individual person is not worth, worthy of my respect. Maybe he doesn't deserve it or she doesn't deserve it. But the office does. The institution does because it has been ordained by God as an authority in this age to restrain sin and to promote flourishing. They are servants and ministers of God. Listen, Christians are not anarchists. We're not anarchists. We understand that God has ordained an order and a structure of government in this world. So we pay. And we pray. We pray for their conversion. We pray that they would make wise decisions, that they would execute their responsibilities in ways that align with God's will, that would allow for the flourishing of the gospel. And listen... In this place where we live today, I think we pray with thanksgiving. I think we pray with thanksgiving. Because again, our government is not perfect, but it's pretty good in a lot of ways. Again, someone hits you on the street, there's going to be someone there to come in and help. So we have a lot to be thankful for. And finally, we play. And listen, by this I mean that we live in a unique place in the world where we can actually influence and shape 
the government through our involvement, through our involvement in voting, through our involvement even in serving. We can protest within the law without being lawbreakers. We can lobby. We can try to persuade. There's nothing wrong with those things in themselves. Now, if you're in first century Rome or you're in 21st century North Korea, you can't do that. But we can where we live today. And so play a part, if you're able, in seeking the welfare of the city, as Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So we pay, we pray, we play. With a discerning heart, believing that the gospel is greater, let's go out today and be good citizens. Let's pray for our leaders. Let's obey. And look, if the government commands what God condemns or condemns what God commands, then let's die, if we have to, as faithful servants of Jesus. As Peter says in 1 Peter 4, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Listen, there's a lot that we didn't touch on. There's a lot of other things that go into this conversation. And Paul doesn't talk about everything, but he says a lot, doesn't he? So let's go today as good citizens looking for ways that we can honor God by supporting our government insofar as we can. Father, we pray that you would help us. These are not easy words. Father, in it, uh, I, I think we do see something of your heart and your plan. And Father, I pray that we would go today eager to serve you and to honor you, eager to make much of the gospel. Father, we pray that your spirit would work in us to help us. And we pray, Father, as we act out there in the culture around us, the way that we act, that it would point people to Jesus, that they might, through faith, find in him their life and life eternal. So, Father, we pray that you would work, that you would help us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.